0: Throughout this podcast, we have talked about many different things, recurring themes in the rock and roll of the 80s and early 90s. We've talked about changes in lead vocalists. We've talked about Diane Warren. We've talked about Peter Cetera just about every episode. But one thing that we have not ever discussed to this point is
1: the rock supergroup.
0: And that's what we're here to talk about today. We are here, of course, to talk about bad English, specifically their second album, 1991's *Backlash*. And for those of you who are not familiar with Bad English, you have uh, forgotten about them, or you know, never, never had the pleasure of listening to their songs. This is a group that was cobbled together from the remnants of Journey and the Babies—two great tastes that tasted great together, at least during 1989 and 1990. 91 was a little bit of a different story, but we'll get to that. Joining me as always, my esteemed co-host, Matt Wardlaw. Say hi, Matt.
2: Why, hello, listening audience.
0: And our special guest for this episode. I know he's so happy to be here. I know he's so happy he spent time listening to Bad English's Backlash, Jay Kumar.
1: Hey, how's it going, guys?
0: Jay, you are a a DJ, podcaster, podcaster mixed master of your own renown. Can you talk about what you do or people can find you when,
1: you know, after they listen to this? On Twitter, I'm at CoomDog, K O O M D O G G, but I do a radio show called Stuck in the Garage on the online station BFF.fm. So you can, that's every Friday at uh, 11 a.m. Eastern if you want to check out my show. It's mostly indie rock, not too much AOR, but every once in a while I'll sneak something in there. And I do a podcast called Completely Conspicuous, which is coming up on its 15th birthday which is insane to think about totally non-supported by anything but you know it's just sort of a labor of love that i've been doing for umpteen years so so it's fun stuff but but my big fans of you guys and uh happy to be here
0: 15 years that is fucking phenomenal
2: yeah it's crazy i did not realize it had been that long it is indeed completely conspicuous
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
2: And not supported by anything, Jeff, that was his kind of way of saying we have not been supportive, which I get. That. <laughs> I agree. He could have just said that. Like we were talking about Kim Mitchell, like there's different ways you can say things. He took the high road.
1: We'll have and, to. And, uh, I'm a, and I'm a big Kim Mitchell fan. So, you know, Yes, I understand his plight. We'll have to repent,
0: be more supportive in the future. All right. That's cool. So, yeah, bad English, part babies, part journey. John Waite. Probably the biggest known quantity, at least in terms of sound, at that point. You know, we'd had that that hit that I took me probably ten years to forgive him for, "Missing You," that you just could not escape in the mid '80s, and then he blessedly fell off the radar for a little bit. He was kind of at loose ends, looking for something new to do. His former bandmate in the Babies, Jonathan Cain, was out of work after Journey ran its course in the mid to late '80s, and if I'm remembering correctly, Jonathan Kane and John Waite started this with Ricky Phillips, right?
2: That sounds about right, yeah. And I think Neil Sean and Dean had been doing hardline, right?
0: They did not, Well, we'll get to hardline. They weren't quite there
2: yet. But <laughs> That's I the only time we'll say that this year or this decade. <laughs> you get to
0: <laughs> I, think that, I think the deal in the beginning with the first record, I think the deal was that Neil was just kind of being flown in to do solos. He wasn't entirely sold on the idea of being in another band. And then it just kind of happened that everything fell into place. And that first record, self-titled 1989 release, was a huge hit. And it has some pretty good stuff on it. For that type of music, not bad. Especially as far as supergroups go.
2: And I will say we're still talking Hardline, right? Or did we shift back to that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I visited the Hardline... Wikipedia page for some reason not that long ago. I was astonished to realize that they are still around.
2: That's what I was going to say is is I think they've reactivated sometime around, I'm going to guess like 2012 or so. And I was going to interject that they've actually made some really good records. And they had one that just came out within the past couple of weeks. And then Johnny Gioli made a record within the past year and a half, two years with Dean Castronovo. It's also quite good. So that's my long-winded way of saying they have some music that if you dug anything about the first record, which I did, and geez, I think I even had the Double Eclipse record that came after that. But their more recent stuff, I think in some ways, is at the same level or at times even better than some of the stuff they did with the first couple records.
1: I am shocked to see that Rudy Sarzo was in this band.
2: That's because he's in every other band. He's
1: in every (laughs) band,
0: yeah.
2: (laughs) Rudy Sarzo currently, for those keeping score, in the Guess Who? So is he really <laughs> He really <God>. is. Wow.
0: <laughs> Got to pay the bills, man.
2: Yeah. I one mean, of the uh, nicest guys in the business, by the way, I will tell you, he's one mm-hmm. of those guys I've talked to him and it's like, if you want to hear a bunch of cool stories about a bunch of cool different bands, because he's been in all those bands, he can tell you those stories.
1: Yeah, I want to, I would ask him, can you still lick the bass in the days of uh, COVID-19? <laughs>
0: he's so to he's he everything you. at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He can lick whatever he wants to. <laughs> Dean Castronovo, not quite as promiscuous musically as Rudy Sarzo, but he does get around uh and and uh this was one of his stops that um the first record, like I said, has some pretty good stuff on it, often with a band like this, you're, you're doing subtraction through addition, you know you get less than some of your parts, but the mixture here was pretty good, I think, owing to the fact that either together i i different combinations of this band had had been together for uh Significant chunks of time already. So there was some familiarity there. Just a different brand name. But to their detriment, the first album is really basically only known for one song,
2: which would be the Diane Warren song, When I See You Smile. Number one hit. Yeah. There are other songs off that record. I think Forget Me Not might have been the next biggest hit. Either it was the that the first or single. Love. Right? Yep. So Forget Me Not, Price of Love. And I think they even might have put the best of what I got out there as a single. I'm gonna kind of offer the counterpoint to what you just said about this first record, and uh, it kind of leads into you know backlash as well. But I really think that both of these records are top to bottom full of phenomenal songs. So I really thought it was a, a, I, I thought it was a good combination bringing all these guys together. Like sometimes you get a certain bunch of guys together and they just managed to craft a really good set of songs, and I think they achieved that. With that first record, and I thought it was kind of unfortunate that when I see you smile, kind of painted them into a certain corner right away.
0: Were you a fan of the first album, Jay? Were you were you behind these guys when they were
1: when it came out? I was aware of them. I didn't buy the album. Yeah, you know, I was a big AOR guy in the sort of early '80s, and as we we're you know as the '80s wore on, I got into the you know like more heavier stuff like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest that kind of stuff. But you know, I'm still listening to to things. I like John Waite. Uh, I like his voice. So I like the babies. I thought they were great. I was kind of sick of Journey by the, you know, by the time this came out, but you know, I always thought Gil Sean was a great guitar player. So, you know, I figured uh, it would be an interesting combo, but then they came out with when I see you smile, you know, the Diane Warren song right away. And you know, you can sort of see, all right, these guys are going for the hit, you know, they're going for the schmaltz. And I just wasn't, you know, wasn't digging it. And then, you know, we, we can talk about what, what I thought of the 1991 album which is I didn't because I didn't even realize it came out until <laughs> at the time. I just wasn't paying attention, man, you know?
2: Yeah, and I think that as far as what I see you smile, the interesting thing about what you just said there, Jay, is that like I think I've heard several variations of the story that like the band themselves were pretty against recording the song. So I think that that kind of much, uh, I guess, in a similar way to Cheap Trick in the Flame, the massive success in how it kind of overshadowed the rest, you know, kind of just led to their... IRE in a sense, but it must've been kind of nice, you know, selling a bunch of records and making a decent chunk of change. It couldn't have been all bad.
0: I think you got to take those stories with a grain of salt. I mean, this project has still never come out, but this book that you and I were working on with Rob Smith. Yeah. I talked to one of the guys that wrote The Flame. Yeah. And his point of view was they were not that upset about recording the song. They could not have been. He never got that impression. I think it sounds good after the fact to say... That, you know they crammed this song down our throats. We did not want to do it. It's a piece of shit. But
1: they're taking checks.
0: <laughs> Take the t- yeah exactly. And I, I think in the moment it's hard for me to believe that anybody in bad English was upset about that song going to number one. I mean I, I do. The story is that they agreed to record it as a, a favor to the A and R guys or whatever. But it's a fucking Diane Warren song. You know what you're getting. Exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, the label fun? says, and, then, and there was another one on Backlash. So clearly, they were, you know, they weren't, you know, hating the the concept of working with her.
2: Isn't it fun to imagine though the idea that they're doing radio interviews and multiple radio interviews just get shut down because the radio interviews all start the same way by saying, "Say, so you got this uh, big song when I see you smile? Tell us about it." And immediately, John Wayne just says, "It's a piece of shit," and the radio interview is over. I kind of <laughs> like that. I like the idea that that happened.
1: I never liked that song.
2: I don't know. As always, you could have predicted I liked that song with, you know.
1: You watch the video and it's, you know, it's got the classic sort of late 80s, early 90s, you know, uh, slow-mo bits, you know, backstage footage and, you know, John Waite with like ridiculously long hair, you know, twirling around. It's classic, you know, of its time. That
0: look did not do John Wade any favors, even at the, I remember seeing when the, when the video for Forget Me Not hit MTV, I remember seeing him and, and, and just thinking, what the fuck? What happened to him? He looks like Kathy Griffith. Look at that. Yeah.
2: That didn't go well?
1: No, that is not a good look for him. He always had the the kind of punky, new wavey, you know, short hair. So that was always a good look for him. You know, I was watching some babies videos today, and late seventies, he had like earrings and the short hair. Like you you know, he had like a distinguishable look, and uh, he kind of became you know,
2: sort of stereotypical hard
1: rock vocalist. uh,
0: Maybe should have not chosen the bangs.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I see you smile, I was a sentimental 15-year-old in 1989. So, for, <laughs> so was
0: I, but I preferred The Price of Love or uh, Don't Walk
2: Away. I think, well, again, yeah, like and Don't Walk Away, I'm blanking on who wrote that, but that was kind of a well-chosen, you, you can't call it a cover.
0: You know who wrote that?
2: I just know that it wound up on David Foster's River of Love CDs. So he didn't, he didn't co-write it though, did he?
0: No, it was Andy Hill. Okay, yeah. Pete Sinfield? Sinfield. There you go.
2: Yeah. Andy Hill. And King Crimson. Crimson. Wow. Andy Hill, who people will know from uh, some of his Peter satirical rights. There we go.
0: There it is. (laughs) Some people would know. It has to happen every episode.
2: (laughs) But yeah, you mentioned like Price of Love. Like, I mean, that's one thing I think I love about these bad English records, particularly like, you know, Time Stood Still, you know, Time Alone With You, you know, if we're looking at, I guess both those are from Backlash. John Waite really had some great like story songs on both of these records. That's why I wish that these two records got more of a look because basically I I thought that like particularly Time Stood Still from that Backlash album was just a brilliant song. Um, So I think that John did some of his best songwriting and some of his best singing on these two records.
0: I have a rebuttal when it comes to Time Stood Still, but we'll get
1: there.
2: Uh Uh-oh. All right.
0: We're just talking about this first record to kind of set the stage for... um what it did to them you know we've talked a few times on this show about how success can be a double edged sword you know it can really kind of fuck you up and the story with this band has always been that that's exactly what happened that they had a big hit with a ballad and it it made it impossible for them to move forward and i think also that the the timing of it all it was a, a factor too. Like, for whatever reason, the label wanted a follow up really quickly. And so, you know, that first album was on the air well into 1990. And this record comes out in August of '91. Yeah. Doesn't leave them a whole lot of time to to write material for the follow up. So, odds are against them in all kinds of ways. Here comes backlash. I have seen John Waite say that they simply did not have the material for this album, and I tend to agree. We'll start with that first song, So This Is Eden. One of the most depressing rock songs I I think I've heard from that era. (laughs) I mean, his vision of Eden is essentially fucking a hooker at a five-star hotel. (laughs)
2: At the same point, like for people that like like the rocking side of the first Bad English record, it's a great rocking Bad English slash John Waite tune. And like, I, I love his delivery on that. So it is very a great, catchy. Great album opener, too.
0: It's forceful. It gets your attention. It's very catchy. But if we're talking about John Waite story songs, this one depressed the hell out of me. Not only is he talking about, uh, you know, it's a good example of like a rock song that really flaunts the excess that is available to you in that position. But also, like I said, he says, so this is Eden. And what he's describing is really, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's maybe like a 15 year old's version of Eden.
1: Sodom and or Gomorrah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I listened to it closely for the first time while prepping
1: for this. And um,
0: it it, it surprised me and not in a good way.
1: Co-written with Russ Ballard who was everywhere yeah you know who, who, uh, the song voices one of my favorite songs yep. from the 80s a great song also one from Miami vice but uh <laughs> yeah i didn't love this song but
0: are you gonna are you here to defend the lyrics matt it looks like you're looking no, i was, I,
2: I was, I was looking up subsequent <laughs> lyrics yeah yeah you caught me i was looking up subsequent lyrics and i was like oh where is that line no i'm not gonna defend the lyrics you know it, it's funny because uh it's interesting to hear you say that because you dug deeper into the lyrics for So This Is Eden than I did. Like I was working at a record store when I got the promo CD of this, like came in and I put it on. And again, like as an opening track, I was like, wow, this is going to be, you know, a cool rock record. And then it goes straight into straight to your heart.
0: That was the only single, right?
2: Yeah. I think they put out several uh, straight to your heart was definitely, I think the one that they gave the big push to But as I was looking before this, I think that they, you know, put out in some form two or three different singles, at least as far as like stuff that got as far as like having a European CD single and all that kind of stuff. So I think that there were a few singles for this well, record.
1: I listened to that uh, Hitline radio show they did that you'd uh, sent around, which was like, sounds like it was around Christmas time in 91. One of the DJs was, say, was saying, this is going to be the next single. Uh, I forget which song you, you mentioned, but I think it was, might've been time stood still. It made it sound like that. Although it was interesting that, you know, they were like, so are you guys going to tour with this? And they're both like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> hell no. <laughs> Cause we were yeah, talking I mean, to uh, John Wayne and uh, Ricky Phillips. we on the yeah, show. Yeah.
0: The, I guess the elephant in the room that we might as well discuss up front is that the band was already broken up. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. yeah.
0: Before yeah, the that, album yeah, even came out.
2: That's the other part of, of that is that like, literally I was sitting in the record store listening to the record first play through and I was really enjoying it. And Big liner notes nerd that I am, I'm reading through the liner notes and I'm reading through John's thank yous. And you get to the the end of John's thank yous and it says, John Waite, Mulholland Drive, LA 91, PS, the end. And I was like, going, oh my God, they're (laughs) done. Like, even I, like, you know, kind of somewhat early as a music fan, I knew that it that means he, he just said it's over. So I was floored by that. Maybe you guys can present some other example, but to this day, I haven't seen anything like that in liner notes. You know, now of course people break up via a tweet or whatever, but that floored me.
1: Well, Frank Black broke up the Pixies via fax, right? So you know, there's lots of ways to do it.
2: But in the liner notes, I know, yeah, also like that directed, hostile. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) by the way, fuck you guys, I'm out of here. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, according to Ricky Phillips, the band split while the album was being
1: mixed. Is that right? Yeah. Which made it even more interesting that they were still doing press for it. Like, you know, they were doing a radio show and answering a lot of questions from callers as if they were still a band. And, you know, they, were, they weren't they were coming out and saying we're broken up. By the same token, they weren't saying they were going to do anything else either.
0: It's kind of fitting we're talking about corporate rock here because that situation must have prompted all kinds of very unusual and interesting corporate decisions. Like, you know, on one level, I think if you if you're not aware of the fact that they were split up before the album came out, it's kind of baffling that. Even with the way things were changing at radio, this album was just not given much of a priority at all by the label. But they kind of had no choice. like They were dealing with a product that had already expired.
2: I mean, this is Epic Records. This is 1991. So you know that the label just had to be so pissed. The thing that I'm remembering as well is that at some point... I think that John Waite got upset and refused to do the rest of, you know, his vocals with Ron Nevison. So he did the vocals with somebody else, which looking here at the liner notes, it says vocals produced and engineered by Tony Phillips. So, you know, basically it hit a point. I knew that there had been some sort of skirmish between somebody and Nevison. And I think that was the deal was that you know, Waite, you know, kind of bunted heads and eventually said, I'm not gonna work with this guy any further. So there was all sorts of drama happening in the studio for this.
1: I saw some stuff too that mentioned that Jonathan Kane was very difficult. Uh, you know maybe one of the other guys said that you know during this during the recording and it looks like he has writing credit on pretty much every song. So maybe he kind of was trying to take it over because things were falling apart and it, you know it didn't work out. Uh, I will note, note that uh, timing was interesting because this album was released on August 27th, 91. same day as Pearl Jam's 10, two weeks after the Black album, and a month before Nevermind Bad Motor Finger and Blood Sugar Sex Magic. So, you know, they were kind of, you know, entering a a world that was had already changed and was about to really change.
2: And I do remember that, like, because I had like lived through, as we all did, just like the bad English mania for the first record. What I do kind of recall is that when I got the promo of this album at the record store, I don't know that I'd heard it was coming out. There was from where I was here in Cleveland, Ohio no buzz about this album at all. And it's like, and that didn't change. Like suddenly I'm holding this bad English record going, well, wow, there's a second bad English CD, but it's like, it's not like in the weeks that followed, you know, I had people coming up to me going, Hey, cool. New bad it, it Like the buzz for that first album, just like evaporated.
1: I think they were starting. The labels are realizing that, wait, this other sound is starting to take over. We, we better get behind a winner. We'll release this thing quietly and move on. Yeah.
0: I think that may have been part of it, but although, I mean, of the bands that you mentioned, Pearl Jam was really the only one I, that I can remember hearing very much of at all in '91.
1: Oh, I'm sure you heard the Metallica. Sure, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, it was more of a slow build, definitely, though, for Pearl Jam and Nirvana. Those records came out and it's not, they weren't instantaneous, for sure. Yeah,
1: they, definitely Pearl Jam. Like, I actually saw them, Jeff, I don't know if you were living around here in 92, uh, but like uh, the old Axis Club in uh, on Lansdowne Street across from Fenway, little hole in the wall. I, I saw them there. It was like one of their last shows before they jumped on Lollapalooza, and it was packed. But the next time I saw them was two months later on Lollapalooza, and it was, you know, insanity. So Matt's right, it was totally a slow build. For a lot of those bands, but but clearly, like you know, the, sort of the alternative rock thing was happening. You know, even with like Jane's Addiction and other bands, kind of started college rock bands starting to get notice, and you know, these kinds of bands were starting to starting to peter out a little. Especially like I think, you know, maybe the label was like, all right, these guys don't even want to tour, so why should we <laughs> do anything with this? Record? Well, they don't exist.
0: There is yeah. no band. I wonder what they'd had to do to get those guys to go out and do press for this album at all i know yeah
2: you know i mean i think that basically like you're right jay when you mentioned like the conflict with jonathan kane you know and i think that uh, what struck me about i kind of remembered it differently i remember i remember that maybe it was jonathan kane that was on that radio show so i i turned it on and i was like oh it's john wayne and ricky phillips so i think they kind of obviously got the two guys that were the most agreeable that actually like were still getting along and I think that those guys probably ended up doing a lot of the press. You know, my memory is that like, you know, Kane did whatever Kane did. And I think, but I think Neil, I think Neil made a pretty quick exit from the proceedings. And I think he pretty quickly left the wreckage.
1: He was off to join Hardline. I found this uh, interview with John Waite from a German rock magazine from 1992, where he talks about sort of the breakup and still kind of saying like, you know, they're hoping to reconvene they're going to meet at christmas and talk about it but you know definitely acknowledging there was a lot of conflict going on during that record so
2: yeah he was bummed i've interviewed him a few times uh he still has a lot of affection for both those records like he's proud of what he did with those records you know it's like that that's what i think is kind of cool is that i know that both both he i mean obviously dean both he and neil both speak highly of those records not sure about jonathan i really haven't seen too much from jonathan but like Uh, It seems that – and Ricky. So it seems that individually, like, they're all still pretty proud of what they did with the records and wish they could have carried it further.
0: You know what? It's just one check from Frontier's records away from –
2: That's what I'm saying. The third bad English
0: record. Now, I like Straight to Your Heart. I think that's a pretty good song. Time Stood Still does not do it for me at all. From the intro there where Sean is – or Sean, however – Neil is doing his Spanish lover flamenco. Yeah. Yes, and then, man, you say this is a story song. The story is really: I met a woman on a beach. We had sex. We built a fire on the sand, and then, like, I was trying to cite. Is he help me out here? Because the chorus is, I, "I'll love you until time stands still." But is he? He's not really describing love, right? I mean, they they had an encounter, and that was it. Is that correct, Matt?
2: I kind of see it as he captured a moment. I see it at the very least. I see it as they had a moment that was powerful because the lyrics that like just slayed my sentimental little heart were we threw our watches in the sea. Oh so God. It, I remember I that looked one. You, you looked at me and time stood still. I heard that. I was like, oh man, that's so I'm such a nerd. Years later when I talked to John, I was like, dude, I got to tell you. And I read that lyric section to him. I, I'm like, that's beautiful, man. <laughs>
0: And what did you say I
2: I think I just wanted to hang up the phone after that but he was very receptive and and all that (laughs) yeah of course he was (laughs) but that's literally no joke that's one of my favorite John Waite lyrics so yeah but if we want to break it down I think at the very least uh, it it was just a moment it was an encounter something that you realize is not locked in time but for that moment it was good it's basically a spank bank song (laughs) yes
0: right yes exactly (laughs) that's right (laughs)
2: Like so, take our be terms in and out, Jeff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then that brings us to the they made the mistake of going back to the well with Diane Warren. I was thinking about this and I I, I think every rock band recorded more than one Diane Warren song. Something terrible happened to them. <laughs> the curse.
1: Yeah. Like you get yeah. huge yeah, success Yeah, they turned into wussies. <laughs> You have
0: enormous success with the first one. And then you go back to the well and it's the only one that I can think of off the top of my head is um, Chicago. Like Cheap Trick didn't do another Diane Warren song, did they?
2: I feel like they did. Which one is the Diane Warren song on this record?
0: It's the next one. It's uh, Time Alone With You.
2: Oh, I like that song, Jeff. It's a good song. Thank you, Diane Warren. Thanks for bringing that into the world. (laughs) Diane Warren was rock solid enough on that one. I would have told you John Waite wrote it, and I would have been wrong.
0: Well, she co wrote it.
2: Okay. There we go. Yeah. Because I, I think I have some strong attachment to this song, too. I'm looking at the lyrics here. Uh, I mean, come on. So John every- he's in a subway
1: station. He sees this chick, and they hook up in the corner. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, Jeff, when everything is cloudy. Their watches and- onto the tracks. <laughs> when everything is cloudy and the sun won't shine for me, and it seems like nothing's going. Right. There's a place I want to be. Don't you feel just warm and fuzzy all of a sudden after hearing that?
0: That would get you laughed out of a Hallmark factory.
2: Just laying there beside you in the shelter of your room, I leave the world outside your door, lose myself in you. When you're in my arms, I find all that I need. I could never live without the that you showed me. So if we were playing that lyric game with Ben Arthur, I feel like we could have, we probably could have scored high. Some good, like the whole like, the Heaven That You Show Me. We could have filled in that lyrical. Or at least you could have. I failed all over Ben, so... You got,
1: you've got, got, like, Baby Take My Hand, We'll Find the Promised Land, you know, the, some great ones here. Yeah, man. Even, like,
0: even the beat, everything about this song, to me, screams that everybody in the band was just looking at their watch the entire time. Nice. It's just such a dirge. It's boring, boring, boring. And it didn't even get
1: released as a single, so... And who's uh, Are you guys familiar with Mark Spiro? Because he's on three songs. I
0: think he's yeah. a friend of Waits, right? Yep. Any? Yeah.
2: Kind of a, a fan of the, you know, fans of the melodic rock scene, dig Mark Spiro's stuff. But yeah, he was kind of a, a crony of Waits for a good while as far as songwriting, for sure.
1: And Tim Pierce, who I think was, he was in the Babies, right? Tim Pierce? He plays on, the, on Life at the Top at the End there.
2: Uh, guitar player. One of the things has been associated with our man Rick Springfield. Oh, there That's right. you
0: go, and released a really fantastic Matt. Are you familiar with his solo album, Gu- Guitarland?
2: Oh yeah, Guitarland's fantastic. Yeah,
0: right. What well, would you describe that as? Kind of like a not smooth jazz. It's
2: yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it isn't super
0: rocking, but you know, if you're in the mood for a, a nice, uh, it's just like it's just like a nice little guitar record. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. That's a terrible way to describe it, but it kind of snuck out. In the mid '90s, and I don't even know if you can stream it or if it's in print anyplace. But if uh, you get your hands on a copy for a couple bucks, it's it's a, it's a solid investment. And Tim Pierce has a fantastic YouTube channel where he talks about all of his oh, guitar good. tricks. Yeah,
2: yeah. He
0: he's a he's a guitarist guitarist and seems like a really nice guy too.
2: That's what I was going to say. Was that uh, Tim? He was in that band Toy Matinee with Kevin Gilbert and Patrick Leonard. And I was going to mention that YouTube channel because for anybody that's a nerd about that record, I keep discovering people that are, he does a great job of going through breaking down uh, stuff from that record. And he got, you know, Patrick Leonard, some other folks back together for the anniversary of that record to do a thing for his YouTube channel where he went through a bunch of the songs. So it's oh, cool. really cool stuff. Yeah.
0: They're going to do that for third matinee as well?
2: Damn it. Probably not. But they should.
0: I can never remember who was around for third matinee
2: versus yeah Richard Page Patrick Leonard, and then from there, I kind of fall off,
0: so then we get to if memory serves the song about the the young lady who is dancing off the edge of the world is that correct
2: yeah it's it's a a story song about a hazardous da- dancing activity where Let's you' throwing it
0: out to the flat earthers <laughs> wow
2: <laughs> strong nice, nice jay
0: this is it's another fine. one I watch mean, watch out for the edge. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just another example of how this is where, you know. This song and the and the Warren one for me really hit home what Wait said about how these guys just did not have the material. I mean, we've talked in the past in this podcast about how AOR at this point was becoming very formulaic. And that song, man, how many songs are there about watching women dance and about how she's dangerous? I think there's a lyric in the song about how
1: she melts the ice. I mean, it's Pretty pedestrian stuff. A lot of uh, f- references to praying on this record. Praying for rain. Rebels are saying a prayer. Like it, you know. There, there's definitely some things he kind of likes to go back to. I'm waiting for the rebuttal.
0: Yeah, I am too. I I'm that, like-
2: yeah. No, I think dancing on the edge of the world. Like what I was going to say to you guys is that, like, I really don't think they're. I, I like the songs on this record, top to bottom. But as we're talking about this, I could definitely identify some ones that are not as strong as the others and i would say dancing on the off the edge of the world is one of them savage blues probably the other one make love last those are three of i would say the weaker tracks on this record i think they had the material i disagree they didn't have the material but but the sales back up the fact that they did not have the material
0: well here's what i'll say i never listened to this album that closely until just now but yeah. when it, when it came out i remember feeling like okay okay, you know, every song, starting with the first song. If you're not listening too closely and you're into this type of music, everything is completely... I mean, these are guys who... They're very talented players and they knew what they were doing. And it's a piece of product that I think under different circumstances might have performed better in the
1: marketplace. But honestly, if it came out two years earlier, I think it would have done pretty well. Yeah. You know, it's just, I feel like it was just it was kind of a remnant of something that was starting to slip away you know time did not stand still for it
2: no i think you're right about that if it would have come out a couple of years earlier because you know these two albums i think that depending on the day like i like this album a little bit better than the first one and you know maybe the next day it's you know vice versa so i don't think that this one had any less material wise as far as stuff that had radio single potential I think that maybe the hooks for the radio singles that were put out for the first record were maybe just a tad stronger but from my view when i look at the songs on this record and listen to this record not by much like for the singles that they were able to like you know find success with on the first record i think that there's enough we've talked about a lot of records this year where they didn't have much ammunition besides the initial track for example david lee roth little ain't enough like. That song, that title track, was the most DLR sounding song on that record. This record, I think once you got past, you know, Straight to Your Heart, if Straight to Your Heart is the When I See You Smile of this record, I think that there were other songs, there were other options beyond that song on this record. So I think that this record, to what was said, you know, to the points previous, if it would have had some sort of a proper push um, and it was out a little bit earlier, I think it would have had some potential legs.
0: Do we think that if the band had actually still existed when the album came out, the story might have been a little different?
2: I think probably like, you know, just a little thing. Like, I think if they would have toured, you know, we we know like, you know, what you know touring and going to radio stations and shaking hands and kissing babies means, how much that means as far as record sales. I think if they would have done the actual full court press, even for a tour, I think that they could have had like a couple of successful singles before the thing fell off. So I think that this thing could have gone... In 1991, I don't know that this thing would have just gone gangbusters the way the first record did, but I think that they could have had at least two singles off this record that would have performed reasonably well.
1: Because for the first album, they were, they were opening for Whitesnake. I mean, they were playing arenas, they were, they were on the road for a long time, they really humped it, and they've had a lot of singles. This comes out, and there's no tour. I don't remember hearing anything about this record, really, and it just sort of sunk like a stone, so... Part Of that's timing, but part of that is just, yeah, like you said, there's no band to do anything with this record.
0: Imagine if Epic had put them on the road with Pearl Jam.
2: (laughs) Oh my god, yeah, yeah,
0: imagine Pearl Jam opening Opening that that. English.
2: Well, we're all smiling right now as Jeff says that, by the way, because yeah, that would be a ridiculous combo. So, there
0: have been plenty of bizarre, oh, sure, yeah, yeah. no, Alice and Change
1: is open for like a really wide range of, of acts, like. You know, from the heaviest metal bands to like, I want to say some AOR. I know they opened for Sammy Hagar or Van Halen,
2: or as we call them here, Jay Van Halen. Van Hagar. Proper respect.
1: No, Van Hagar. Even <laughs> <laughs> Sammy's calling them Van Hagar now.
2: I heard one of the more interesting combos that I've heard. I just spoke to uh, Jack Blades this past week. What we were doing was we were talking about the Night Ranger "Secret of My Success" video for. So, for people that have not listened to this podcast, it features a air quotes porn section in the video with vince neal tommy lee and weird al yankovic and i was like how uh, you know how did that come together so jack of course you know says well you know you know we know that i'm like i know you know the motley crew guys how did you guys connect with weird al and so he's like well we played some shows together i said wait a second what universe does weird al Play shows with Night Ranger. How did that happen? And so there's actually a great story that came out of that, where basically what happened was I guess that they were both doing shows. So so it doesn't sound completely like they actually played shows together, like they were on tour together, but they were playing shows at the same time at Disney, like Walt Disney. Whether it's you know I think it was Walt Disney World, and they were you know they said like okay Weird Al's playing. They found out that Weird Al was playing, and they decided to go over and watch Weird Al's show. And I guess that Weird Al found out that they were coming. So every song in his set, and Jack said, I'm telling you, man, every song. Weird Al ended every song with the ending to You Can Still Rock in America. So da-da-da-da-da-da. And Jack's like, man, I'm telling you, every single song, he finished the song. Da 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 So that's one of the more bizarre combos that I've heard of. And I just was a little bit disappointed to find out that it wasn't actually them out on tour buses together because that would have well i mean come on there's uh, oh shoot who was this
0: we were just talking about Howard Jones and Marshall Crenshaw a
2: couple and, weeks and ago with a mime that opened yes that's what i was going to say that's was, right yes i think both Howard Jones and also Duran Duran i think both of those are two examples i know that when i saw chicago on the 21 tour there was a comedian that opened the show so i you know i don't
1: well like van halen's infamous for Cool, uh, openers like after the fire with Derek Commissar opened for them. I remember on uh, I think Diver Down. I think one of they had one of the Marley kids open for them uh, on the reunion tour. So they, they, you know they've always done stuff like that. I actually saw you know speaking of AOR tears, I saw Lover Boy in Manchester, New Hampshire in 1986 with Dawkins opening up, and I was only there to see Dawkins. But, <laughs> but Loverboy Boy put on a good show. So Dokken was opening for Lover Boy. Yeah. Doc it was like the, the hell out. It was the, I mean, in 86. That makes chains. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. There was the, you know, full, like they were on the rise and, and Loverboy was kind of, you know, going downwards, but it, it was a good show. There were guys putting their girls on their shoulders and the girls were taking their shirts off. So classic
2: 86. I just would have put Doc <laughs> higher than that, 1986. So yeah, that's yeah, that's interesting. I
1: think it was one of those things where it was early when the album came out, so they were kind of assigned to that tour. And by the end of the tour, they, I'm sure they were headlining and you know had somebody else opening for them.
0: But. See, this is what I'm talking about. Pearl Jam could have opened for Bad English sure. in the fall of 1991. God damn it! Yeah, we missed out. We did.
2: This is a big missed opportunity right now we can hear we can hear like Mike McCree saying, you know, I'm telling you to this day I'm still in touch with John Wake. good dude, still holds up
0: <laughs> Well Matt, we can't even ask the question that we normally ask like the, the memories of the album because you and I are the only ones who have memories of this album at all. I got a promo copy. listened to it once or twice. really didn't think much about it at all i, I I'm pretty sure I sold it back to the store within a month of getting it in the mail. And Jay didn't even know it existed until we invited him to join us. (laughs) I
1: mean, I might have heard that it came out, but I certainly wasn't paying any attention to it and wasn't going to seek out anything from it. Because, yeah, by that point, I was starting to get into, I guess, it, probably the Chili Peppers and, you know, all that stuff. I was definitely in, into, you know, that genre and I was looking, you know, away from AOR. So.
0: What was your takeaway from it in 2021 then, going in fresh?
1: Very cookie cutter. A- I mean, it sounds like an AOR album. But, you know, I saw that on the first album song, Best of What I Got was in the credits of Tango and Cash. I feel like, you know, <laughs> any right. number of these songs could have ended up in some crappy 80s cut. Buddy Cop movie or a Michelob commercial. You remember the Loverboy song Notorious? Also oh God, has that I sure kind of, do. It has that the video, uh, which I believe was directed by David Fincher, is a total. It's just like a beer commercial. Like it's you know, you know the Loverboy guys driving around and then all these like hot girls and guys that go into a club. And I feel like you could take any of these bad English songs, the upbeat ones, and plug them into that. You know, sort of a Michelob, Phil Collins, Eric Clapton com- kind of commercial, and they would have. And fine.
0: Notorious, just like Secret of My Success, has I think five or six co-writers. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah Bon Jovi,
1: right? Bon, yeah, Jovi's oh, bon Jovi wrote yeah. that song. Yeah. I feel like I like John Waite's voice. Like I said, the band is a good band, but these songs are forgettable for me. So
0: I had the same thought about Waite's voice while I was listening to this. You know, as much as the lyrics to some of these songs turn me off, and as much as I think some of the songs themselves are a little bit pedestrian he really does have a very nice voice
1: it's unique you know and somebody asked him on that radio show why you know do you write for other people and he said everybody thinks that my songs sound are just written for me so they can't imagine singing it you know any other way so nobody's ever really taken his song although i did see that tina turner covered missing you which i didn't realize until i was doing some research like you can tell his voice like you know a lot of those like sort of foreigner a guy was like brian howe who took over in bad Company. There's a very simple, you know, there's an AOR voice and John Waite doesn't have that. Like he's got his own unique sound, which is to his credit.
2: First of all, Jeff, I'm honestly going into this. I'm surprised to find out that you did not gravitate to this record. I thought that this would be one of the ones that for sure you would be behind. So very surprised to find that out.
0: It took until, what was the single? Remember that record he put out on that, that label that that died a quick death? It was Terry Ellis's label.
2: Yeah, I, I do. Was that the, was that the figure in a landscape record or more recent than that? No, or I really think it was, was
0: Temple Bar, the one he put out in 93. Oh,
2: Imago, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: The single for that album, I think it was called How Did I Get By Without You? I think that was when I forgave him for Missing You. Missing You scarred me deep. It was hard for me to listen to him for a long time after that.
2: Wait's co-written a good number of tunes with Glenn Bertnick, and He's got some real nice Glenn Burtnick co-writes. And I want to mm-hmm. say that How Did I Get By Without You is one of those. But uh, regardless, uh, he's got another absolutely gorgeous ballad called Downtown that folks uh, should look up that I don't think it was from that record, but it was kind of in that same It's on Temple
1: Bar. I'm looking at it. Okay. All right. How Did I Get By Without You was written with Mark Sparrow and Tim Pierce.
2: Okay. There we go. (laughs) I was half wrong, all wrong on that one. So.
1: Glenn Bartnick. It's
0: right. I think Wade is better served with that. I think he's better off in that vein. I don't think he was really well suited to this. You're right. He doesn't really have the same. He stood out for the same reason that I think he didn't really. He wasn't really well suited to it. I I don't
1: know. I like a sort of like the hard rock power
0: ballad dude. I think especially the particular way that he. I mean, assuming the way it was responsible for the majority of the lyrics here, I think the way that he chose to play that character.
1: Little ethereal, a little, of of
0: little yeah, yeah, a little offensive. I, I'd rather hear Wade in a singer-songwriter mode than hear him talking about hooking up with some random girl in a five-star hotel. and I don't know. But I think Matt probably disagrees. He, he looks a little hurt right now. I feel like <laughs> I need to stop.
2: What I was going to say was, I've talked with Wade about this, but I thought the babies were really ahead of their time. Like songs like, yes. Is It Time, Back on My Feet Again. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Great band. Like,
2: I listen to songs like that, and I felt like for all those, you know, quote unquote, hair bands that had success when they did, if the babies would have come out around that time, I think they could have had a hell of a run with both the like rock stuff that they did, like Head First and Midnight Rendezvous, and, and some of the other stuff, the, the slower stuff that I mentioned. Like, I, I think that band is really underrated, and it's really mystifying to me that they came out and... I think Ricky Phillips said this as well when I spoke with him. They were one of those bands that both of those guys told me that, like, literally, if they weren't on the road touring, records weren't selling. So it's just, it's mystifying to me that, like, those guys did not have success, but those guys did not have success with the babies. And I really think that they should have.
1: I saw, I think it was Wade who said that basically the label did not put a lot of money into the babies either. So,
2: yeah, Chrysalis.
1: Yeah, Crystal's had no money. <laughs> maybe, yeah, but yeah, like, isn't it time? Every time I think of you, these great songs. They have like great female backing vocals. Like, you know, it's a good band, and they, yeah, they kind of, you know, like I remember them from being a kid and hearing them on the radio. But clearly, like, if they had gotten a little bit of more of a push, they would have been pretty big, I think.
2: And I saw him live in the late '90s, early 2000s, and he's definitely a guy that like is in the category of guys out there that lived the rock and roll life, which is to say, lived a little bit hard. Somebody like that, you would just expect their voice to be destroyed. And man, I saw him for the first time, like I said, late 90s, early 2000s. And he sounded fantastic, like record perfect, whether it was the baby songs or the bad English stuff or whatever. And I think that's one thing that I'm salty about is that it was definitely late 90s when I saw him for the first time now that I think about this, because one of the next times I saw him was 2001 Journey, Peter Frampton were playing arenas and John Waite was the opening act. And so there was, you had all the members of Bad English there, except for, I guess, Ricky Phillips, but enough that I talked to Waite and Waite's like, yeah, man, you know, they're going to come out during my set. We're going to do a little mini Bad English reunion. And it didn't happen because there was, you know, one particular member that was not named Neil Sean. And <laughs> didn't want to do it. Wasn't Neil, wasn't John. So draw your own conclusions from there. <laughs> but, you know, now that like concerts are starting to actually happen again, if you uh, go see uh, John Wade even today, like he still sounds fantastic. So uh, if you like those songs, whether they're Bad English or the solo stuff or babies, still a good time with John Wade. Who can sing? Yeah.
0: Is he still recording and touring?
2: He is. I think that his last record of originals is probably, uh, probably close to 10 years gone by now. He did a record going back a bit with Kyle Cook from Matchbox 20 playing guitar and I want to say co-producing as well that was a good solid record. So more recently he's been doing these this series of kind of like acoustic releases called Wooden Heart that where he's kind of you know going back and revisiting songs from all over his catalog.
0: The Last Refuge of the Scoundrel as far as I'm concerned.
2: <laughs> Rerecording. recording yeah. Yeah. Cover I remember song title idea The Last <laughs> yeah. Refuge of the Scoundrel. The, the Songbook of Me.
0: <laughs> I remember him going through a period, kind of like Peter Sotero, where he he kept putting out records on labels that went belly up pretty quick. And I, I think really ruined his solo
1: career after. Yeah, Imago, Gold Circle, No Break. Gold breaks. Circle, yes. Rounder, Frontiers.
2: Yeah, that record, Figured the Landscape, that was out on Gold Circle. That was a great record. And, and yeah, man, it came out. And I don't know maybe the label even folded up while he was on that tour with Journey and Peter Frampton, but like it was a great record. He felt good about it. He had gotten newly sober, like he was in a really good place and label just died and killed that record. Also
1: came out about three weeks before nine eleven. So well,
2: that's there true there wasn't yeah. much
1: touring being done after that. So. yeah. I think they did go broke pretty quickly though.
0: I remember they promoted it pretty heavily when it came out, and then there was just nothing.
2: Then there was nothing, Jeff. That's the way that so many of these stories sadly end.
0: well so where do you think you want to put this in in the big picture of the the careers of these these guys these separate guys i confess i don't even know what ricky
1: phillips has done since bad english but
2: so ricky's been in sticks for the last 15 years or so playing bass
1: that's why i don't know he worked on a couple of songs on the page coverdale or the coverdale page album which came out the next year or two years later but yeah it sounds like he yeah sticks has been his main gig
0: that makes me so sad
2: yeah where does this sit i mean honestly i think that's that's why it makes me a little bit sad Is like i don't think it sits very high uh, on the awareness factor with a lot of folks like if you weren't like a massive john Waite fan or you know journey fan or all that you know if you're just a casual fan of what these guys do like i don't know that you're aware of this record because it just kind of came and quickly went and you know maybe you see it in the dollar bin now and you had the first bad english record and you're like oh wow you know i didn't know they had a second record Your name is Jake Kubar, and you buy it, you take it home.
1: No, I would not buy it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I know that sounds harsh, but that was Jake Kubar. That was Coop Dog's ring endorsement.
1: (laughs) I just listened to it like four times, guys. Come on. I put the work in.
2: (laughs) You put it to work. Nice.
1: I feel like it's always easy
0: to assume from the outside that projects like this were designed purely to sell records. I often don't want to believe that that was really the case. I would not begrudge any of these guys cashing out. They'd all earn the right at that point to go for the brass ring, but...
2: Yeah. I think in some form, I think that this was like John Waite's kind of like next chapter that at some point in the phase as it was all coming together, they decided to make it into a band project rather than a John Waite. That's how I kind of remember is that they decided to you know try to build a band around him.
0: So this was Waite on Epic at this point?
2: He was not, but you know, I think that the way I recall things is that like, you know, as things kind of started to develop and there was some interest, at some point it kind of shifted. It's like, well, you know, what if we put this together and it's like you had the the two journey guys that were somewhat sort of newly available and not doing anything? You know, then you folded in a couple other players, you know, Neil had been working with Dean, so you know, Dean was part of the package. And then however Ricky Phillips got into it. But that's how I recall it starting was that there was some sort of uh, smoldering interest in John Waite that they decided to reframe their approach as far as how they were going to bring him into the stable.
1: And then I think Backlash is sort of the, well, these guys had like some big hits on this first one. Let's, you know, get back in there and make another one. Let's go. And then, you know, it didn't work.
2: What's interesting to me is like I picture somebody like Neil Sean and John Waite, like I picture those guys riding all the time. And I think that we can see from this record that 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 maybe that wasn't entirely the case. But what kind of brought that to mind was that I just was listening to an interview with Chris and Rich Robinson from the Black Crows, and Rich was talking about how you know they were on the Shake Your Money Maker tour for twenty two months, three hundred fifty shows, and by the time they went in to make the record that would become Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, he said that they had like you know two albums worth of songs that they didn't even get a chance to record so that's what as we were like coming into this today i just it kind of floors me because i would very much picture we'll throw jonathan kane in there jonathan kane to me is that same kind of person i would have guessed that all three of those guys as much time as bad english spent out there like i would imagine they would come in with like a boatload of stuff for album two and it just doesn't seem that that happened that way
1: it sounds like part of it too was they weren't getting along so yeah, maybe sure you know, maybe they had the songs but You know, the other guys didn't want to hear them or didn't like them or who
2: knows. Yeah, there's definitely some stuff that we know now, like, you know, there's a tune called World Gone Wild that was, you know, kind of presented at the time that many, many years later wound up as uh, a track on uh, Journey's Arrival. I think that might have been on only on the Japanese version or the American version. Maybe it was the American version, but regardless.
1: What a ride. What a ride.
2: There were some songs that were around that did not either of these Bad English records that have surfaced since.
1: Yeah, it was a B-side in Malaysia, so, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Only a dream in Rio, as James Taylor once said.
1: Only a
0: dream in Rio. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I think people who can ride on the road like the Robinsons are the exception, I think.
2: Yeah. I, and I don't get that, man. Like, I... I I guess I sort of get that because I know that like, you know, when I travel, like it throws my whole routine off. So I I can see that side of it, but it's just like, when you're sitting on a tour bus, as they like to say in a very popular way, the other 22 hours of the day, I just would, particularly guys that just are like, now, you know, when we see Neil Sean on, you know, on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, he's always got a guitar in his hands and he's always jamming away. So it's just like knowing that he's that type of person at the very least, it's like using him as an example, I would have thought that he'd be out there on the road riding away for the next record in that time along with himself.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it's like, it's your fucking
2: job. <laughs> I think that's what I was trying to say in a nice way. Is it's your fucking job.
0: <laughs> Do it. You got, you're on a bus all goddamn day. What else are you doing?
1: Come on. <laughs> Put down the hookers and blow for a second and, you know. Write a song.
2: We find out that in the good times, John Waite, Jonathan Kane, and Neil Sean were actually playing Connect Four on the tour bus. Like <laughs> shows. But they had big Connect Four addictions. I do think. Or, or Battleship. You sunk my battleship. Wait, fuck you.
0: There could have been a better record here, I think. There could have been. And I, Kane and Sean are both more than capable of giving us their own When I See You Smile. Like, I don't think there was one of those on this record. Time Alone with You is not. Diane Warren's best. I, I don't think that was a, that, w- that would not have been a hit under any circumstance. I don't think.
1: It was am interested with just bands that, that use outside writers after proving that they can write great songs on their own, whether it's Aerosmith or Cheap Trick or or these guys, what gets into your head that tells you that you're not good enough, but Diane Warren is, you know, I guess it's the label.
2: But. Yeah, it absolutely was the label. I know, I know that like, when we're talking bad English and I mean, we saw this happen, you know, certainly with cheap trick, as you mentioned, you know, heart, et cetera. Yeah. I think that.
0: Well, but hold on, like cheap trick and heart had both put out some flops.
2: Sure. Yeah, but Journey uh, all, had not. Yeah. But journey kind of left with raised on radio. It had been a few years from that. Like, I just think that the situation that those two guys and John Waite were in was that it had been a few years since the last time they did anything major. It goes back even a little bit further for John Wayne, obviously, because I I guess that's missing you would be 84, you know? So I I think that from what I've gathered, you know, the labels were not willing to just roll the dice and and kind of insisted bringing in some songwriting artillery in the form of Diane Warren. So
1: We love you guys, but use these songs.
2: (laughs) And as we've seen, like, it's surprising that it, it was just like, small part of the record and not the majority of the record thinking so so I think to the credit it they were at least able to recognize that like we have some good songwriters here. There's a lot of good history with you know with Kane and with Sean and with Wait. But if anything they were just you know rather than it being like the heart situation, in this case I think they were just, you know, building in in their mind probably a little bit of insurance by like let's bring in a Diane Warren song, etc.
0: Every episode we've asked this question. Most episodes the answer is no. But I think we're getting to the point in the year, we're getting late enough in the year that maybe the answer is gonna start to be yes. Do we feel like the way this album performed commercially was a bellwether for what was about to happen at the format? And I see Jay nodding aggressively already. (laughs) Totally.
2: I'm gonna say no just because I don't think it made enough of a blip that like who cares? Like I think a lot of people I think a lot of people will be like they would take the Jake Kumar route. I wasn't <laughs> even aware of the Bad English release to record this year. So I don't know. I I don't think so.
0: But look, Straight to Your Heart did fairly well at rock radio, right? Didn't it?
2: It did fairly well at rock radio, but even as well as it did at rock radio, Jake Kumar was not aware of it. So <laughs> it did not do that well.
1: <laughs> it was number 42 on the Hot 100, guys.
0: On. on the Hot 100, yes. But on yeah. uh, mainstream rock radio, I think it did better than that.
2: Top five in my heart, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> when we
0: get our band together, we'll cover this song.
2: <laughs> I like that idea. Yeah. You can yeah. sing it. Was it big enough? Did Jason Hare ever include it in his set with Acoustic 80s? Absolutely not. All right. See, that tells you. He
1: did know. When I See You Smile, though. I bet he did. I, I okay, see yeah, that was a big song.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I feel like... My memory of this is is rather dim at this point. it's been 30 years, but I, I remember getting the press kit for this record and it being one of the thicker ones, you know, like sometimes you get you get a press kit that's really just like a sheet of paper, and maybe you get the, uh, the photo, maybe you don't, and the album you know the promo copy of the album doesn't have any liner notes or any artwork. This was the, the full Magilla, and as far as Matt, you probably still have your copy. I remember the booklet for this record being very thick.
2: Well, that would be incorrect, Jeff Giles. So it was all John Wave writing goodbye notes. <laughs> <laughs> you all suck. They use two panels on the band picture. Oh, God. Leather vest. Cool. So you can see that on the right-hand side of the screen, Dean Castronovo is very upset with some of the comments that Jake Kumar has <laughs> made. <laughs> but the surprising thing to me that I would have told you otherwise, which supports your big, thick booklet, is I open this up, to look up the lyrics for Time Stood Still, and there are no lyrics, just thank yous and credits. So yeah, booklet is all of one, two, three, really five pages.
0: My memory has failed
2: me. Five pages fold out.
0: I really, Honestly, I thought that this album was at least 14 songs long. I was really surprised that it was as short as it
2: is. I remember it being much longer than this. I would have told you it was longer as well, but yeah, 10 songs, 10 and out.
0: I feel like on the release schedule... Even in August of 91, if Bad English had been together, this would have been a major priority for the label. This would have been a big release for them. Sure. Absolutely. So I guess there's no definitive answer yet to this question as to whether this album is a canary in the coal mine for AOR
2: you know, what I think is interesting about this is just the idea that, as Jay points out, like, you know, you got Pearl Jam 10 that comes out, you know, and I think he said Nirvana, Nevermind, but certainly soon. This record definitely sits right in the zone, the trouble zone, I'll say. It was surrounded by all the things to come, more so than records that came out earlier this year before, like, some of the really, really major records started to drop around it so so this one definitely you know had if they were going to happen straight out of the gate like it would have had some formidable competition so i guess you know luckily for that like you know pearl jam 10 as mentioned you know did not just become a blockbuster right when it came out so it's not like it was surrounded by instant blockbuster albums but definitely you know had a couple that were signs of things to come for sure
0: i'm never gonna let go of my thought of this alternate universe in which Pearl Jam is on the road opening up for for Bad English in the fall of 91. I think that would have been outstanding.
2: I would have loved to have seen that uh, as a fan of both bands. I like your alternate universe where I can sit here and tell you the story that like, I became a fan of Bad English because I saw them open for Pearl Jam or vice versa, you know, or I became a fan of Pearl Jam because I saw them open for, for Bad English. There we go. That's the more fun version of the story. Yeah.
0: Yeah, now I want to hear weight cover even flow.
2: <laughs> wow. <laughs> he, he does like a big jump off the, off the drum riser, breaks both of his legs.
0: I think we've said everything there is to say about Backlash, Matt. I think so. Is there anything else you want to talk about right now?
2: I'm having lots of fun at the Mighty Ultimate Classic Rock. I was supposed to talk to Stuart Copeland this past week. It did not happen, but had a wonderful conversation with Joe Perry. So the classic rock rolls on. And for anybody that likes themselves some good 80s Canadian hard rock, Coney Hatch has a new live album out, uh, recorded live at the Elma Combo, that sounds really fantastic from a sonic standpoint. And I haven't uh, heard
0: of a record with that title in a very long time. That makes me happy.
2: Yeah, it's the 70s. Yeah, they really kind of just – they've totally renovated within the past couple of years. They totally renovated the album combo. So they've – one of the things they did was they put a big recording studio on the premises and the ability to do live streaming and all this. So that's kind of one of the funny things since I was talking to Andy Kern from Coney Hatch was he said they were really pretty well positioned for a pandemic and the idea – like all this stuff, all the live streams and concerts that – People have kind of like scrambled to pivot to during 2020, like the Elba Combo was ready to go straight away. So, but yeah, so the end result was uh, them having a nice uh, recording studio there on site at the Elba Combo. They really came away with just a five-star recording that if you like this band, chances are you already own it. But if you ever liked a song or two from Cody Hatch and uh, want to take the deep dive, it's really a great 70-minute CD or vinyl that... Does a really nice job of picking from all four of their records. So no matter you know which of the three records from the prime era are your favorites, they're well covered. And if you liked that reunion record, Coney Hatch Four, you're covered there as well. So that's my my big plug that I have. Absolutely no incentive uh, other than uh, just want to point that out to lovers of Canadian hard rock.
0: What about you, Jay? What do you want to plug?
2: I'll plug, actually, I just
1: got this today. The new uh, album from Split Single, which is oh, yeah. um, Jason Narducey, who's the bass player for Super Chunk and Bob Mold, you know, was a solo artist in his own right. And this is his solo band. He's actually got Mike Mills of REM on bass and John Worcester on drums, who he works with in uh, Bob Mold and uh, Super Chunk bands. He crowdfunded this through Indiegogo a couple of years ago. And things obviously slowed down last year because of the pandemic, but he was able to they were able to get it done I think late last year and just got the vinyl today in the mail and it sounds really good. Best. And he's starting to announce some some dates. I think Mills played with him at like sort of the record release party. I'm sure that he won't be touring with them, but I've actually seen uh Narducey play with those other bands a lot of times and uh actually do like uh living room shows. I have I did a living room show in uh, Alston, Mass at my, my friend's uh, house. So very cool guy, great musician, very, you know, real kind of power pop sound for split single. So uh, well worth checking out if you're into that. Uh, it's called Amplificado. It's the album yeah. From split single. Yeah.
2: And, and Annie and I have been looking up to see split single a few times and they're just, they definitely, if you like the records, they back it up live. Just a great live band. And that's really the case, Jay, as you know, anytime you see Jason on the stage, like Jason is yeah, awesome. awesome. Yeah. What are you going to plug, Jeff Dowles?
0: You know what I've been listening to more than any other that record? English? No, Your no, mom? no.
2: My mom. <laughs> Dave
0: Lifton's mom. Lift strong. Matt knows I spent yesterday listening to the new John Mayer record, which I am uh. deeply conflicted about.
2: He sent me a text that I said was the most conflicted text I've ever received, which says, I've listened to the album five times. I hate him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.
0: Well, because he's on this press tour, right? And I don't know if, Jay, I don't, I, I don't know if you've been paying attention to this. He's compared the album to a shit post, which it's upsetting to me because, you know, He's operating in a vein that is already shit on all over the place anyway, and I feel like I'm being trolled when I listen to this record, and I resent it.
2: But have you seen the artwork, Jay? Yeah, the uh, '80s. Yeah, yeah, classic. Yeah. Uh, nice price, hype. Yeah, that's awesome. And I like the hype sticker above that says "Available on Columbia Records and Tapes." Speaking of uh, you know Michelob commercials, this could you know you could totally pop
1: into one sure, of those.
0: But if it's an earnest artistic exercise, th- what I read initially was that he what, you know it was during the pandemic he wanted to make an album that gave him comfort, and as somebody who grew up during the era when when this stuff was very popular, I, I, that resonated with me, and I was really looking forward to hearing what he would do in that vein. But
1: now that I know it's
0: just kind of, or at least that he's saying it's just kind of an artistic exercise or whatever, the bloom is off the rose a little bit.
1: Is it like Weezer covering Toto, you know, or Van Halen? Or I, I think that's do- what's
2: upsetting to Jeff is that like, you know, Jeff, what I, re- what I really got from you was he started talking about this, you know, in June or whatever, when he announced the record and he was positioning it as an earnest endeavor. So really, to answer your question, Jay, like as far as the Weezer thing, that's the thing is like that this record feels authentic so to be talking with jeff last night and and find out that like he's kind of turned his heel a little bit that is upsetting when you position like like Uh it's a joke i I make yeah exactly exactly it's like because he told us first you like i was a fan of all that stuff that's why i made this record and then it's like as the record hits the stores you walk it all back
0: right because you're a fucking coward you're a coward john mayer (laughs)
2: And so, so Jeff and I are. Let there be a duel. Jeff. Throw your glove down. Myself, Jay, like, we're all pretty good judges of character. And I know that, like, you know, when you get tricked and you're usually pretty good about not getting tricked, it's upsetting. Pandemic Who fool me once.
1: Shame on for you. Those fool me twice. Won't get fooled again. Yes. I cannot
0: remember off the top of my head what we're talking about next episode, but I think I know what it is. I
2: Just think go it's. With your, go with it. Yeah.
0: I think it's not one album, but two albums. Oh.
2: Ooh. So, what are the chances? I, I, I guess we're not going to be talking about the Shadow King. Album.
0: <laughs> Wait, is that a reissue of the Shadow King album?
2: That is a Rock Candy reissue. Just a few years from now, we'll be talking about the uh, anniversary <laughs> of the Shaw Blades Hallucination album. So, which. What did which, they
0: add to that? How, why well, would this is reissue? a rare
2: misstep by Rock Candy because there were two Japanese bonus tracks that were not included on this reissue. Had I not gone to Tokyo just a couple of years before they did that and gotten the Japanese re- the Japanese version, I'd be more upset, but I'm okay with it. So
0: I cannot wait until we have a podcast where we can talk about the Shaw Blades hallucination album. But yeah. Until then. So good. All right, guys. Thank you for having this conversation about this album that clearly most of the world doesn't remember. Until next episode.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for joining us.